One of the biggest changes in the past two years is our society's focus on health, not on wealth. Who could have imagined a scenario when our Prime Minister or Premier would hand over their press conference to a Chief Health Officer? Or when the most popular podcast on the ABC was by a medical doctor? We're used to hearing from the head of the Reserve Bank and from economists, but not so much doctors and scientists. But all of this changed when our greatest threat became an invisible virus. And now we don't really care about interest rates or GDP or surplus budgets. We want to find out how many cases, how many deaths, what percentage are vaccinated. In a relatively short time, we've stopped focusing on economics and instead have become focused on health. Now imagine that the same tectonic shift from economics to health was to move on to an even greater threat to humanity. What if we started to count conversions, conversions to Christ? What if we measured the number of people attending church or the people who leave jobs to train at more college to do an MTS apprenticeship? What if our Premier was to hold a daily press conference which said something like this? Well, hello, everyone. In the 24-hour period to 8pm last night, we had 857 people become Christians and 110,453 people heard the gospel. I can't stress enough the importance in getting converted to Jesus. Please know that Judgment Day is coming, and so you need to come forward and get your sins forgiven. Imagine that. Imagine that she actually addressed the greatest threat facing humanity. Imagine that she actually counted the most important milestones and KPIs. And imagine that everyone in New South Wales cared more about repentance than vaccinations. If we did, we'd see the world the way it really is. We'd see the desperate need for people to be forgiven of their sin and to have God's anger turned away from them. We'd see the coming day of judgment as the true moment in history that we must prepare for and we would put all of our energy into preaching Christ now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you need to do that now. Don't muck around. You won't survive Judgment Day because right now God is angry at you. And if you don't find safety and protection in Jesus, then you will receive the punishment that you deserve in hell. That's what Jesus warned about us last week. When we looked at Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, this is, this is what Jesus said, his words. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is what you get when you reject Jesus. And so if you've rejected Jesus, you need to come to him now and say sorry and you need to follow him as your king. It's more important than superannuation. 
It's more important than vaccination. And these current global events must be seen as a fresh wake-up call to humanity to get ready for the return of Jesus. And we know all this because of what Jesus said and did in his brief time on earth around 2,000 years ago. He made it clear that faith and forgiveness are what mattered most. Faith and forgiveness matters most. He said it and he showed it. And today we continue our journey through the New Testament book of Matthew. And we turn to chapter 9 where we see in verse 1 that Jesus climbed into a boat and went back across the lake to his own town. Jesus has just travelled across the lake to the heart of the pagan world, to where he met two men possessed by demons. And he cast those demons into a herd of pigs which destroyed themselves in the sea. And the people of that place recognised the power and the authority of Jesus. But they told him to leave. And so now he gets back into the boat and he returns to the Jewish towns on the other side of the lake. He's gone from Israel to the nations and back to Israel. And now Israel starts to recognise Jesus' power and authority. And we see this as we get our next verse. Matthew 9.2a uh, says, Some people brought to him a paralysed man on a mat. It's not the first time that a paralysed person has been brought to Jesus for healing. And by now, he would have had a reputation as a healer. And people had faith, belief, trust. It's the same thing. They had that in Jesus, who they saw as a man who could really heal paralyzed people. They showed their faith by actually bringing to Jesus the man who could not walk. They didn't just think it. They didn't just believe it in their heart. They actually demonstrated it with their actions. They had genuine faith in Jesus, proven by what they did. And because of that, Jesus responded positively, but unexpectedly. For instead of just saying, I heal you, or get up, what he said was this, verse 2, B. He said, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, be encouraged, take courage, my child. Your sins are forgiven. With a word, Jesus changes the agenda. Did you see that? They were thinking health, but he was thinking salvation. They were seeking healing, but Jesus brought forgiveness. They came for healing, but received forgiveness. Just like the shift from economics to health, Jesus changed the game in a flash. Now it's all about forgiveness. It's about salvation. It's about eternal life, which is a big shift if he's just a, mir- if he's just a miracle worker and nothing else. But his words show that he's far more than a simple supernatural health practitioner. And people notice. Verse 3, some of the teachers of religious law said to themselves, that's blasphemy. Does he think he's God? The teachers of religious law, those Jewish leaders, they realise that when Jesus declares forgiveness, it shows that Jesus thinks that he's actually God, uh, which is right, because only God can forgive sins. 
But they had another assumption, and that was that Jesus was not God. And so they assumed that Jesus was not God. And because of that, Jesus was committing the sin of blasphemy. See, if anyone says that they are God and they're not, then they're committing blasphemy. But if someone says that he's God when he is, he's not committing blasphemy. So who's right? Jesus or the religious leaders? Well, let's find out. Verse 4. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you have such evil thoughts in your heads? Jesus read their minds. And he rebuked them for their evil thoughts. So instead of Jesus being the one who was blaspheming, it turns out that they were. The teachers of the law were guilty of blasphemy because God is there, right in front of them. And they say that God is blaspheming. Check that out. The religious leaders accused God of blasphemy. Look, you want to be pretty... Pretty confident of your theology before you accuse God of blasphemy, wouldn't you say? And so Jesus calls them out as having evil thoughts. So he says to them in verses 5 and 6, Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and he said, Stand up, pick up your mat and go home. Right there, Jesus proves that he has authority on earth to forgive sins because he rules creation, which he demonstrates with his power over illness and over disease. But he does him more than that. He tells the religious leaders that he's the son of man. The one in Daniel chapter 7. The one who said, of, who said of him, verse 14 of Daniel 7, he was given authority, honour and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. And because he has authority over all the nations, he has authority on earth, or as it can also be translated, in the land, in the land of Israel, in the promised land. You see, with all of this, Jesus declares that he is the son of man. He makes it very clear to the Israelite religious nerds there that he's the Messiah, that he's the son of God. And here is the physical proof of that. Verse 7, and the man jumped up and went home. See ya, bye. Fear swept through the crowd as they saw this happen. And they praised God for giving humans such authority. Jesus had authority over this sick man's illness. And it showed that he had authority over all humans. As the Daniel 7, son of man which means he also had authority over people who would normally be cast out of the kingdom of God. And I'm talking about sinners. Sinners. People who could never hang out with true religious people. The outcasts. The sinners. And surely Jesus, whoever he claims to be, you'd think he wouldn't have anything to do with them, would he? Well, apparently not. 
verse 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. And so Matthew got up and followed him. Would Jesus have anything to do with sinners and tax collectors? Yep, he certainly did, right there. In one verse, Jesus sums up what it means for him to be Lord over everyone, even tax collectors. Now, tax collectors back then were different to the nice people who work at the Australian tax office and sit behind computers and answer phone calls. These guys in the first century, like Matthew, were the people who carried out the oppression of the Romans and they got rich from it. They were people who now worked for the enemy and they were benefiting from the sadness of their own people. And Jesus tells one of those tax collectors, follow me. And this particular guy called Matthew just got up. He left his wealthy ways behind him, his successful career, and he became a disciple of Jesus in one verse. Turns out he's pretty good at writing gospels too because he's the guy who wrote what we're reading, Matthew's gospel. But his controversial company, Jesus's that is, also included others who were not acceptable, verse 10. As we read that later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees, they're the, they're the re- certain religious leaders in the Jewish area, when they saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Uh, well, some versions of the Bible don't put it as scum. It's literally tax collectors and sinners. But fair enough in this translation, it's trying to say that if you could call someone a tax collector or a sinner, you may as well be calling them a rude word. Jesus taught the scum and he also ate with them. What's he doing? Is he stupid? Is he crazy? Verse 12, we see that when Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he came to do. And he knew exactly whom he came for. He came to turn sick people into healthy people. But not medically, but spiritually. Verse 13. Because then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners. It's such a terrific verse. Jesus quotes from Hosea chapter 6 in the Old Testament to show that what matters is the forgiveness of sins, not religious ritual. It's not about doing all the fancy-pantsy kind of religious stuff. It's the heart that matters. And then he makes it clear that his mission is to call sinners. He's come to call people who need saving. He's come to call people who need saving from their sin. And I reckon this is really good news. Because after all, none of us are able to save ourselves. And that means that all of us, by definition, are sinners. 
Jesus came to save you. He came to save me. And that means that no matter what you have done, he is calling you to come to him for forgiveness. You might think that you've burnt too many bridges with God and the church. You might think that you've done too many bad things to be accepted by Jesus. But Jesus says that he is here for you. So what are you waiting for? What's stopping you? Come on. Come to Jesus. Well, after this, we get some more controversy. Verse 14. Because on one day, the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and he asked him, why don't your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? What's wrong with you guys? In comparison to the religious people like John the Baptist's followers, basically Jesus' people were not living in a way that was kind of like all the other religious people did around then. They weren't having the ceremonial fasts, which is where they did without food for the, for the purpose of religious behaviour. But verse 15, Jesus said to them, Do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Jesus said, now is a time of celebration, not commiseration. It's a wedding reception, not a funeral wake. And that's because the time of the exile of God's people is over. They fasted because of the destruction of the temple and because they were taken captive in a foreign land and they were exiles. But the exile is over, so it's time to party. That's what Jesus is saying. The Messiah's come. It's not a funeral, it's a wedding. Isaiah chapter 61 and 62 spoke about the coming of the Messiah like it was a wedding. Check this verse out. Isaiah 61 verse 10, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride with her jewels. See, all around there, it shows the vibe that they should be having now that Jesus is there with them. They should be having that vibe because the groom is with them. But there will be a time when the groom is not. And we know what Jesus is talking about, don't we? He's talking about his death on the cross. That's a bit like a funeral, isn't it? Well, of course. But when he rises from the dead, it'll be time for another party, of course. And as it was. But Jesus has another answer for those that say that they should still be doing the religious fasting of the Old Testament, the Old Testament way. He says in verse 16, Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the old skins would burst from the pressure, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine is stored in new wineskins so that both are preserved. Jesus uses two illustrations here 
to show that when the new time comes, things need to change. When the new time comes, they need to change for the new. You can't just patch the Old Testament ways with a New Testament patch. You can't just put you just can't put New Testament wine into an Old Testament wineskin. You actually need to have a radical departure from the past. The old is radically and dramatically renewed. And that'll include so many things that they'd taken for granted and had taken to heart. So when Jesus came, things would change for the better in so many ways. And that meant they had to prepare themselves for a whole new world, a whole new world under his leadership. But before this could start to sink in, Jesus was interrupted by someone who was an important follower of the Old Testament religion. Verse 18. We read that as Jesus was saying this, the leader of a synagogue came and knelt before him. My daughter has just died, he said. But you can bring her back to life again if you just come and lay your hand on her. Just as Jesus was announcing the radical change that comes from his rule as Messiah, one of those old religious leaders shows what the new faith of the New Testament should be like. He didn't say, he's blaspheming. Instead, he knew Jesus' authority and he trusted his power. It's hard to imagine what it would have been going through the mind of this poor man. His daughter was dead. And so he didn't care if having faith in Jesus would cause him political problems. He just knew that Jesus was powerful over death. And so he knelt down before the Messiah and begged him for help. All that his daughter needed was for Jesus just to put his hand on her. And she'd be brought to life. Jesus agrees. Verse 19. So Jesus and his disciples got up and went with him. There. The synagogue's leader's faith is enough to get Jesus walking. But then this happens. Verse 20. Then a woman who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. Imagine that. She came up behind Jesus. She touched the fringe of his robe. For she thought, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Well, Jesus turned around. And when he saw her, he said, daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was healed at that moment, that very Hour, that very time, that appointed time, healing from the Messiah. Out of the blue, this woman with an awful medical condition comes up to Jesus and just touches his clothes. Like the synagogue leader, she recognized that Jesus had the power to heal her. And in fact, the word in the original language for heal is the same word for save. 
And so by the woman recognising the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, she, it turns out that she's, she's not only healed, she is saved and vice versa. And it all came from her faith. Her faith, her trust, her belief. It brought her healing. It brought her salvation. The woman's faith healed her and saved her. It's pretty simple. And it is truly powerful. And that same power was about to be displayed in an even more amazing way. Verse 23. Because when Jesus arrived at the official's home, he saw the noisy crowd and he heard the funeral music. Get out, he told them. The girl isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him. Oh, idiot. He arrives at the synagogue's leader's home and he sees the funeral event and he just says, get out of there. She's not dead. But how would you feel if you turned up to the tragic funeral of a girl and then this random wandering teacher, preacher bloke says, get out of here. The girl's just having a nap. How would you feel? Maybe I'd laugh at him. Maybe we'd all laugh together. We'd been crying and now we're laughing and now we're just thinking how rude and how how bad taste. And so they mock Jesus. It's not the first time he's been mocked. We know for sure it's not the last. But verse 25, after the crowd was put outside, Jesus went in and he took the girl by the hand and she stood up. There you go. (laughs) And the report of the miracle swept throughout the entire countryside. Wow. Just wow. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the sight of the dead girl walking? It'd be like today you turn up to the funeral and you see this photo on the front of the service outline. And it's a happy, smiley face, but... You're sad because she's dead. And then you look up and she's standing there walking in front of you. And you think, that is unbelievable. But they had to believe it because it was right there in front of them. And what we see from that is that Jesus truly did have power over death. Truly, really, fully And news of the miracle spread. See, the gospel of Jesus was naturally spreading over the whole area. Everyone would have heard about this miracle because it was a truly amazing event. And it directly affected a man who was from the leading ranks of Judaism. Jesus was healing and saving people who are in Israel. And his glory was growing But the next episode involves two people who were kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum, the social spectrum from the synagogue leader. Verse 27, that after Jesus left the home, two blind men followed along behind him shouting, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on us. They were blind. That would have meant that they couldn't have worked. They would have been poor. And there they were, 
addressing Jesus as son of David. What does that mean? Well, it means that they know he's Messiah. And they cried out to him for mercy. And verse 28 tells us that they they went into the house where Jesus was staying. And they asked him, and Jesus asked them, do you believe I can make you see? Yes, Lord, they told him, we do. They couldn't see things with their eyes. But they were able to see spiritual things with their souls. Their faith drew them to Jesus. Their faith drew them to Jesus because they knew that he was able to heal them. And so verse 29, Jesus touched their eyes. And he said, because of your faith, it will happen. And then their eyes were opened and they could see. But Jesus sternly warned them, really, really sternly. Don't tell anyone about this. Honestly, you must not tell anyone about this. But instead they went out and spread his fame all over the region. Oops. It's another miracle of great faith. And even though he told them to be quiet about it, they couldn't keep their mouths shut. And so his fame spread everywhere. And so we go from someone whose eyes wouldn't work to someone whose mouth and tongue wouldn't work. We read in verse 32 and 33 that when they left, a demon-possessed man who couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. So Jesus cast out the demon, and then the man began to speak. And the crowd were amazed. Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. They exclaimed. The reason he couldn't speak was because he was possessed by a demon. So Jesus just said, yeah, get out of me, will you? And he did. And he started speaking. It's amazing. It really is amazing. And unlike anything that's ever happened before in Israel. How do you reckon you'd respond if you saw that? If you were at the funeral of the girl who came back to life and then you saw the blind people suddenly able to see and then this guy who couldn't speak able to talk what would you think you'd have to just stop and say this is something amazing we are in the presence of God but what do the religious leaders called Pharisees do Verse 34 says that the Pharisees said he can cast out demons because he's empowered by the prince of demons. Really? The Pharisees think that Jesus is powered by Satan. You believe that? Powered by Satan. How could they get it so wrong? How could their hearts be so hard? Sadly, this is the experience that some people have of Jesus. They are face to face with his power and yet walk away or say that it's, it's from some other supernatural source. I can think of some of my family members and friends who once knew Jesus and they saw his power over their lives and the power over 
their friends and their family. They've experienced the goodness of life with Jesus, but now they've turned their back on him. See, that's what happens as people come face to face with Jesus. But some will say that he is satanic. How about that? Well, the last little bit of our chapter today zooms out a bit and it shows what his amazing ministry was like. We read in Matthew 9.35 that Jesus travelled throughout all the towns and villages in that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. Jesus went everywhere, telling them the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And as he spoke, it brought healing. The faith that brought them to come to Jesus was the faith that brought them healing and forgiveness. And his actions were not emotionless. It wasn't that Jesus looked down and just said, yeah, whatever, another day at the office. Have a listen to what Jesus felt. Verse 36, that when he came, when he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They needed Jesus. They desperately needed Jesus. And Jesus felt for them. He had compassion on them. He was moved by them. Jesus was deeply moved by the people. Jesus, the good shepherd, recognised the need of his sheep. And so what did he say to his disciples? What do you think he said to them as he looked around at the confusion and helplessness of the crowds? Verse 37, he said to his disciples, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. Using some language that reminds us of the final day of judgment, that harvest day, Jesus looks around and, and he saw how great was the harvest of people. All those people who were confused, all those people who were helpless. All those people who needed Jesus as their shepherd, as their saviour. But the problem was he needed more gospel workers. He needed more people to announce the good news, to preach the gospel. So what did he tell his disciples to do? The last verse tonight. Pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. What does he tell them to do? He tells them to pray. Pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more workers. I wonder if we in our church could pray this just a bit more. I wonder if we might be able to pray a bit more that the Lord of the harvest would send more workers. I mean, we pray a lot for mission and evangelism, and that is good. Let's keep doing it. I love it when we do. But I'm just conscious 
of my own prayers, um, and when I pray alone and when I pray with others, I don't think I pray enough for more workers for the harvest, as Jesus commanded his disciples. Maybe this is something I need to give more attention to myself. Maybe it's something that we as a church need to give even more attention to. Maybe you need to give it more attention when you pray to God as well. And then you know what? Sometimes the one who prays becomes the answer to the prayer. If you're passionate about praying for more workers for the Lord's harvest, then it's possible that you might be one of the very workers that the Lord is wanting to give to the harvest. Maybe you're one of the very workers that he's praying, that you're praying for. And that's why I'd love many of you, many of you tonight, to consider coming along to MTS Recruit. We heard Benny talk about it. It's in two weekends' time. Register online because you're going to get a chance to think long and hard about whether you might be the way that the Lord is answering your prayers. If you've even given the smallest little consideration about doing gospel work of some sort, no matter how old or young you might be, come and register for MTS Recruit and have a listen to the sessions and be involved in the, in the mentoring. I reckon, it's, I reckon it's something you should do. And maybe even tonight might be the night you look back on and say, that was the night that I realised I needed to do something about becoming a gospel worker. Because the harvest is plentiful and yet the workers are few, which is a big problem. You see, when our nation finally worked out that the answer to COVID-19 was for us all to get vaccinated, then the nation realised it needed more vaccines and more people to deliver the jabs. When our nation realised that vaccination was the answer to the pandemic, it stopped everything to focus on that need. And that's great. I can't wait till we hit 70% and then 80%. But as I said at the start, there's a bigger need than vaccination. And get vaccinated. But there's a bigger need for our world than vaccination. And that is we need forgiveness. The biggest need of our world will not be fixed by economists. It will not be fixed by politicians. It will not be fixed by doctors. The biggest need will be fixed by evangelists. Evangelists. The world's biggest need will be fixed by evangelists. It'll be people who preach the gospel of the kingdom. It's a huge need. And Jesus urges us to pray for workers to deliver the ultimate solution for the need of humanity. Will you pray? Will you go?